You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast i'm hayden grove joined as always by chris fedor chris how are you doing this fine monday in cleveland ohio it is not it's not we we usually do this on nice days for some reason (laughs) yeah we got to stop doing that hayden i was out doing yard work and then i kind of had to come in um i finished most of what i wanted to get done but there's a few things that i still have to do and i had to come in because i had to do the podcast so we've got to pick like a rainy crappy day to actually record these podcasts from now on that's the well, new rule that's the new rule i like that rule the problem however is that it's uh, always going to be monday so maybe we can switch <laughs> that around i don't know i don't know maybe we can add, we can talk to mother nature and she can switch things around for us that'd be nice yeah exactly so we do have a couple things to get to in regards to the cavaliers but first of all and we will mention the cavaliers in regards to this uh last night Sunday nights are the new must-see TV nights for sports fans all over America with The Last Dance. Uh, we are almost halfway through, I believe, right? I think it's a 10-episode documentary mm-hmm. series. So, unfortunately, we are almost halfway through, but it's been a great ride thus far. Um, the Michael Jordan documentary last night, the third and fourth installments of the documentary, and they mostly um, involved Dennis Rodman, the Detroit Pistons, and, um, you know, a little bit about Phil Jackson and how, you know, he came to be with the, with the um, Chicago Bulls. So, Chris, I want to get your thoughts on the, both of the episodes last night. We obviously talked a lot about the first two episodes last week, but I do want to let you fill in or give us your thoughts on what happened uh, last night. So, buddy, I was talking to somebody the other night and they, the, they were telling me that they felt the documentary was off to a slow start. And I said, that's usually how it goes, right? They have to set everything up. They have to do the backstories on stuff. And usually the first couple of episodes are going to be like that. But man, three and four really kicked it into high gear. I was really looking forward to the Rodman stuff because he's such a fascinating character, given everything that he's been through throughout the course of his career, both on and off the court. I mean, they had to devote basically an entire episode to him and everything about him. Um, And I thought they did a really, really good job because this is a small school prospect who is really, really quiet. And then all of a sudden he rises into this new celebrity because not because he has these great dunks, right? Not because he's the best scorer in the NBA, but because he's an incredible rebounder and defender. And then all of a sudden he goes to the Chicago Bulls after being part of 
Uh, the Detroit Pistons, the team that the Bulls couldn't get past, the team that beat up Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. So there's just so many different layers to the Dennis Rodman story beyond him going to Las Vegas and partying his butt off and um, hooking up with Carmen Electra and all those different things. Um, and I thought the way that they presented it, his authenticity, um, the relationship between Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman and how Phil allowed him to kind of be himself and how Michael allowed Dennis to be himself. I thought that was really, really captivating last night. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the way that he was portrayed as really not the guy that you see with the, you know, the flamboyancy and the, you know, kind of just what I don't even know how to describe it. The Dennis Rodman ish <laughs> qualities about him. But yeah, I mean, I think it was it was it was really interesting to me that um, that Michael and Scotty were like, hey, you know, we hated this guy with the Pistons. He was a pain in our butt. And yep. he literally literally a pain. I mean, he would you know, shell out pain like nobody else. But they're like, if he can help us win and he can, we're going to, you know, bring him here and make us make it work. So. Um, I thought it was really, really cool to see like the, the Michael and Scotty were like, all right, you know, we're going to let him and Phil Jackson. Like it's, it's so interesting because a lot of times you hear about coaches, you know, getting guys and then making them fall in line with what they want. I think right. Phil, Phil was really kind of hands off and said, okay, I understand Dennis. I know how he is. I know what he feels. Um, I thought it was interesting. I know th- it might've been the second episode where Phil was talking about, his Native American, you know, roots and growing up or being in Montana and all that mm-hmm. and, and how Dennis Rodman kind of fit in with that and had his own uh, thoughts about the uh, Native Americans and that they're um, the way they went about things. So uh, I was just really, really interested in that relationship. I think you could do a documentary on that and them two <laughs> by themselves, Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman. The other thing that it brought up to me, um, I remember having a lot of conversations with LeBron just about leadership, Hayden. Yeah. And what the best way to go about it is, because if you remember early on in LeBron's career, he wasn't looked at as the greatest leader. He wasn't looked at as the guy. There were a lot of questions about, can he be the number one guy? Can he be the leader? Can he lead the team to a championship or does he need somebody like Dwayne Wade? And I remember talking to LeBron and he said the thing that he really learned as he went on is that you have to communicate to different guys different ways. And I think that was shown in last night's episode with Phil Jackson talking to Dennis Rodman a certain way, Phil Jackson talking to Scotty a different way, Phil talking to Michael a different way. And LeBron always said the way that he communicated with Mozgov was not the way that he communicated with like Kyrie or Richard Jefferson or Channing Fry. And um, it just goes to show that that sometimes when you're talking about coaches and you're talking about relationships in basketball, it goes so much deeper than, than what is perceived from the outside. It's not about after timeout plays. It's not about X's and O's. It's not about play calls and sets. It's about, can you communicate with guys in a way that's going to make them want to follow you? And Dennis Rodman was lost in San Antonio and he was lashing out and he didn't fit there whatsoever. And then he goes to Chicago and he basically makes the Bulls invincible and he becomes this huge icon and this celebrity and this interesting character that people want to talk about. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Like, I mean, on a personal level, like, you know, like you said, he was a small, shy kid from Oklahoma and 
small school and everything and kind of late first round pick. Yeah. Late first round pick went to the, you know, went to the Pistons and was, I mean, was very much a big part of their championships, but also was, you know, still not the star. And then I don't, I just, I wonder how like it came to be. And I, they mentioned it a little bit about, you know, Madonna and telling Madonna, telling him like, Hey, you want to have, you want to, you're going to have to figure out the person that you want to be perceived as. And, and then, mm-hmm. then that's kind of where, but like that's that that really doesn't do enough for me in regards to like how Dennis Rodman like went through a period of time where he like became himself. Like, you know, we they talked about like having the gun in, in Detroit and him being despondent and all that stuff, and that's how he got out of Detroit and went to San Antonio. Um, and Dennis himself said he was lost, but I'm I wonder like how he found that part of himself, like the the part of himself where he you know changed his hair every 10 minutes to a new mm-hmm. color and dressed so like outwardly different and, and, you know, with the rings and the tattoos. I mean, I just, I don't, I wonder how that transition kind of set in. And the good thing for Cavs fans, Hayden, throughout all of the two episodes last night, episode three and four, yeah, the shot, um, the stuff about the Cavs was only about what, five minutes long, something yes. like that. So it wasn't an entire episode devoted to that. He didn't have to relive that misery over and over and over again. You had to relive it because you can't tell the story of Michael Jordan and the ascension of him and the Chicago Bulls without his first playoff series win, without his most um, impactful playoff moment early in his career that kind of springboarded him into this clutch dagger thrower late in games in these huge series without the one that started it all, which was the shot. Um, so I know people uh, were talking about it on social media last night and, and saying how painful it was to rewatch. And um, Mark Price tweeted about it and Kevin Love tweeted about it. And Ron Harper had some interesting things to say about Lenny Wilkins' decision to put Craig Elo on him and stuff like that. So um, at least it was only a small portion of the episode. Yeah, it really was. And I, I know that when we started talking about this documentary, you, you mentioned about how the Cavs were going to be perceived, you know, how they were going to be portrayed. And um, and I guess that's I mean, there's not going to be that much more. I don't think. Can't imagine. Um, I mean, you know, it was a short clip. I mean, obviously, it was a very, very, very big moment in Michael's career. But I mean, when you really look at it, yes, it springboarded him, but it was a first round series. Um, he had so much more to go and there's so much more to tell in his story. Yep. So I kind of understand why that chapter was so small, but I mean, at the time, I'm sure, you know, the Cavs bulls battles were as big as anything, you know, though the Cavs were, like they said, one of those up and coming teams that, Oh yeah. Th- that were very good and, and had some great players and, and were a thorn in Michael's side. I mean, they beat them six times that year, six times in a row, didn't, didn't lose a game to the bulls. And then all of a sudden the bulls come into the playoffs and win a uh, best out of five series. Thanks to the shot. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting that Ron Harper, you know, came out and said uh, this was some BS when he wasn't <laughs> guarding when he wasn't guarding Jordan. Uh, what what did you make of that decision, dude? It's so easy for somebody like Ron Harper to say that, right? But right. what was he going to do that was any different? That was right. my big takeaway last night, and I've exactly. seen the shot over and over and over again, and I've talked to a number of people about it, and so many people give Craig Elo crap. And he has turned into this guy who was the defender on the play, who didn't do enough to stop Michael Jordan and 
like the one signature moment of Craig Elo's entire career is being on the other end of the shot. And I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, Hayden, that was good defense. Yep. My man Elo played his butt off. Jordan, he forced Jordan to his left away from the basket and forced him to hang and readjust in midair. And people are trying to tell me that Ron Harper would have done a better job in that situation than Elo did. Sometimes you just have to tip your cap to the offensive player and say, you know what, man, that was a great shot. So people that are killing Lenny Wilkins, too, about putting Craig Elo on uh, Michael Jordan instead of Ron Harper. Like, what else did you want the defender to do in that situation? What else was a defender going to do that was going to yield a different, better result than what Craig Elo did, which was basically play Michael on that possession as tough as you can play anybody? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. It's not, you know, they call it the shot for a reason. It's not the bad defense. It's not, <laughs> it's not the poor defensive effort. It's the shot. Um, I mean, as you said, yeah. I mean, I the thing that I think that I could nitpick about is letting him, I mean, I know, listen, I know that it's easier said than done. And You're going to say, don't let him get the ball, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, I know, I know. Or I understand why, how difficult that is, but that's the only thing I could even nitpick on in that scenario because I agree. I think he, once he got the ball, I think Elo was as close or as, you know, had played as good a defense as possible. Handed was in his face as he went up and, as you said, forced the double clutch. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan for a reason, and he hit that shot. And I, it's a shame that Craig Elo is, will always be remembered for that. Um, because I do think he did a nice job, and I agree. I don't think Ron Harper was going to do anything that much better than Michael did it, or than uh, Elo did it. I mean, people were killing Elo last night on Twitter like they were watching the shot in real time again. I don't, which I don't understand. It, it was a sl- You could see it so easily on slow-mo. Like, you and I are sitting here agreeing 100%. I don't know what other people see when, in regards to the defensive effort there. I mean, it was literally, it wasn't as if he was nowhere to be found. He was literally in Jordan's sight line until Jordan double clutched and then got the shot up and made it. I mean, it was an incredible shot. It would have been like if Kyrie missed the shot, right? The shot in, in game seven against the golden state warriors. And then a couple of years later, like LeBron is in a documentary sitting down and they ask him, about um, Kyrie taking that shot instead of him. And LeBron rewrites history saying he should have passed me the ball back or something along those lines, right? Like you can't judge everything based on results. Sometimes the process is good and the result is bad. And I think that's what the case of the shot was. I, yeah, I totally agree. That's exactly what it was. And again, we could be, (laughs) the thing is, if, if Jordan misses the shot, I mean, I think we'd all be saying Craig Elo is, you know, a hero and is oh, yeah. an, an incredibly good defender and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, with the same play. I mean, it's just a matter of inches. If, if the ball goes off of Michael's finger an inch or a, a half an inch differently, it's a missed shot. It's just that's how it goes. It's crazy. Not to mention, I, I believe it was Mary Kay Cabot who tweeted this last night. Her sidebar that night as a staff writer for The Plain Dealer was to do a story on Craig Elo. And the oh, story that's right. was... She did tell me the story, yeah. Right, so the story was going to be Craig Elo, the hero of Game 5, pushes Cavs in the second round over Jordan because his layup um, on yep. the previous possession offensively put them up by one. Uh, so you have him 
and he made the shot um, on offense, and then he could have gone down the other end and had the defensive stop. Like, what a sequence that could have been for that guy. Like, think about how different his career would have been um, and how different he would have been viewed by Cavs fans if if that shot by Jordan would have missed. Because I, I he know. would have made the two biggest plays of the game against Jordan's Bulls in Game 5 at the Richfield Coliseum. I, I have another point. It's kind of a spicy take. The defense against Craig Elo in the, on that play was horrendous. Awful. There was nobody with it. He had... That was the easiest, like, inbound pass, like, cut layup in the history of the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, like, how, like, I don't know where they miscommunicated or what. It was just a wide open layup with, like, five seconds left. They had no intention of guarding him. And he just, easy layup, right, right down the lane. It was also I mean, a really good ATO by Lenny Wilkins. Yes, yes, it was. Absolutely. No doubt. And Lenny, Wil- Lenny Wilkins is a Hall of Fame coach. I mean, there's, there's that, too. Yeah, you got to remember that. I also thought, Chris, last night, you know, amongst everything, we can we've talked a little bit about the shot and and you know the Cavaliers portion of it. Um, I thought the Pistons stuff was super interesting. Which I part? Mean, ju- the Isaiah stuff. The Isaiah stuff, and yeah. just yeah, I mean, just the the Jordan rules, how they kind of outlined the Jordan rules, you know, forcing him to the elbows from the baseline, not letting him go baseline. Um, you know, if he did get to the lane, just hacking him. I mean, I thought that was really interesting. So I wasn't so fascinated by that just because I've heard that story a number of different times and I've read Jordan rules and so many people have written about the Jordan rules and what the Pistons did against him and how it fueled Michael to become a different version of Michael. Uh, The thing that was telling to me is that 30 years later, the uh, spiciness between Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas is still there. It is so, still very spicy. <laughs> that's one thing that you just can't make up when you talk about rivalries in the history of sports. You know this was such a deep-rooted rivalry when you've got 30 years that have passed and you're still acting the way um, towards the opponent that you did at the time that that, that, that matchup was going when, on. When they, handed, when they handed him the video of what Isaiah oh, said, and that Michael was, so was great. just like, well, I don't care what he's going to say. I know what he's going to say now. Like, I know what he's going to say, and it's going to be BS because that's, you know, that's not what he would have said 10 years. Like, uh, it was so fun. I was laughing just like, so hard. Yeah. Yeah, when he when he was saying it, too, and he was like, well, in today's day and age, blah, blah, blah. And Michael's like, <laughs> I, I find it funny, too, that it was Lambeer that kind of said, all right, we're walking off the floor. I mean, it kind of makes sense. He's one of those yeah, it doesn't enforcers, guys. Yeah. But I mean, it also surprised me too. I mean, looking back, I, I, again, I, I guess I've I've known this stuff, but not so much like have paid attention to it. Like the Pistons, the way like they beat some darn good teams. I mean, they were they were they might have yeah. not have had like the stars of Mike, you know, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, but damn if they didn't get there and dominate those guys and get to the finals and win. Yeah, I mean, they showed that you could do it a different way, and I think yeah. I always have mad respect for teams that are willing to zig when everybody else is zagging, right? Or if they just try and do things a different kind of way. And the Pistons showed you could win a championship with smothering defense and just a bully mentality. Because if you think about it, the timing of that, and I'm trying to go back in time, um, the timing of that was kind of on the heels of the Showtime Lakers 
yep. in the Boston Celtics. And it was a different kind of style that those teams won championships with. And then here come the Pistons. Nobody wanted to play against them because they were just rude and they would beat you up. But they did it a different kind of way. They did it the way that fit them best, and it worked for them. Absolutely. Another thing, and and as the documentary went on, you know, the second episode was more so geared towards um, geared towards Phil Jackson and a little bit more Dennis Robin and Michael. Um, I, I found, you know, obviously you know about Phil Jackson and the Triangle, but I found it, you know, the way that Michael embraced it or le- didn't embrace it at first and then mm-hmm. started to embrace it was really telling, um, you know, that he didn't have to do it all himself. You know, Doug Collins was the guy that was just going to be like, all right, give it to Michael, let it get, get out of the way. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, you know, Jerry Krause has been getting a lot of a lot of um, hate thrown his direction. But again, I think that's a brilliant move. What he did with Tex and what he did with Phil Jackson bringing him in. I think it's you know, I'm not saying the Bulls wouldn't have won with Doug Collins, but I think it totally changed their dynamic. And I think it totally, you know, allowed players like uh, Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant to really take flight and to become the players that they were. I mean, that's that wasn't an easy move by any stretch to, to bring in a guy like Phil and to use that offense where you're not going to give Michael the ball every time and let him score 36 points a game. And instead, you're going to pass the ball around and move it. And, you know, as they say, find the energy. So here's the thing. When, when you're talking about Jerry Krause, this is my question. Yeah. What, what do the detractors hang on to when it comes to criticizing him? Oh, what do they hang on to? I think the only thing, Hayden, I think the only thing is the way he handled the Phil Jackson exit. Yeah. Coming and Scotty, out. I suppose. And they mentioned that. And Scotty. Scotty. Right. And Scotty. But even that. Like, I don't know that he even handled that poorly. Scotty had a contract. He was willing to sign the contract, despite people telling him not to sign the contract, including the owner of the Bulls telling him not to sign the contract. So I don't really know what Krause did wrong. Uh, We talked about this last time. I think it was an incredible, incredibly nice job by Jerry Krause. I mean, I, I don't I have nothing against it. I'm just saying the documentary is kind of, you know, slanted against him a little bit. Would you disagree? No, I don't disagree, but it doesn't make sense, and I don't think it's fair because if if you have this guy who makes, I don't know, 20 to 25 really, really good moves that helped the franchise become what it was, and then the one thing that he does wrong is at the very, very end where he says at the beginning of the season, this is Phil's last season, He's not coming back no matter what. We could go 82-0. and He's not coming back. If you just weigh the entire resume, there is nothing there that points to somebody who's anything other than a great executive. I agree. I I completely agree. People told him, stay away from Dennis Rodman. You want nothing to do with Dennis Rodman. And again, it wasn't entirely Jerry Krause. It was Jim Stack who talked about it. Um, yeah. During the documentary, the episodes that aired last night, that that he was kind of behind it because he was digging and he was trying to find information, and he had uh, a lot a lot of his sources checking into Rodman. But still, like the GM has to sign off on that particular deal. And at that time, so many people were saying, "Stay away from Rodman. You want nothing to do with him." He goes to do that. Just the moves that he made to either um, build the team or keep the team relevant and competitive around Michael 
as the game started to change. Like, come on, man. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. He was a sh- very shrewd, very, very, very shrewd um, GM. And I think, again, I, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I guess I don't know why. I don't know why the documentary is kind of slanting in the direction against him. I, I mean, maybe it's a sh- maybe there is a faction of Chicago Bulls fans that really didn't like him. And and we know how the team kind of felt him to- or the, the players kind of felt about him towards the end. But I mean, he did a job and he did it damn well. I mean, you win. You don't win six titles for nothing. Right. That's just my thing. Obviously, uh, it's a big Michael. Uh, that's a big reason well, why they won yeah. six. But right. it, it's not just him. So no. I agree with yeah, it's absolutely everybody. Um, anything else that you take away from last night? I mean, going forward even? I, I, I think that I saw that Kobe is going to be heavily involved mm-hmm. next episode. That will be a little tough. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but I think it's necessary. Oh, yeah. Just because if you think about that next wave of player that came after Michael, um, you know, it, it was Kobe. It, it wasn't LeBron. No. Um the relationship between Kobe and Michael was something different than the relationship between LeBron and Michael. And, and I think it'll be interesting to find out if, if Michael says why, if he gets into that, what he saw in Kobe, like what led to that sort of dynamic between those two guys. I'm sure he will. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know when they did the interviews for this, maybe they would have added one Mm -hmm. after that, but I'm sure, I mean, even though, you know, he, even when he spoke at, He's spoken since, you know, Kobe's tragic passing. I mean, he did. Yeah, he spoke at the funeral, I was about to say. And, or the, sorry, the celebration of life. It wasn't, it was at the Staples Center, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there was something special there. And they obviously had a very good relationship. And I'm interested to see, like, at the beginning, I'm, I'm interested to see if Michael was, like, at the beginning, like, F this guy, like, you know, F (laughs) this little punk. And and then he kind of grew to respect him. Well, given how Michael is, that would be my guess. Yes, that would be my guess. That would be my guess as well. You know, I mean, it's just he doesn't seem like I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard to to like pinpoint Michael Jordan. Like sometimes he does seem like the a-hole. Sometimes he does seem like he doesn't have respect. Like other times he just seems like the most, you know, like the best teammate, the most driven guy. Like it's kind of somewhere in between. I think that's part of the reason why this documentary is so fascinating. Yeah. To really get a sense of, you know, Michael Jordan and who he is. Yeah, because he wasn't just the one guy that you're talking about. Right. He was a bunch of different um, different guys throughout the course of his career. And I think how you view him all depends on um, what you want to view, ultimately. That's a very good point. I mean, you're going to look at Michael the way you want to look at him. You know, sure. he can, if you want to, if you're not a Michael fan and you're watching this, you're going to say, oh, he was a, you know, B head or D head and whatever. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're a huge Michael fan, you're going to say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, that's why he was the greatest of all time. That's why mm-hmm. he, that's why he got the job done so many times. It's just, it really is fascinating. They've done a nice job. I can't wear like next. I, so next week will be another two, right? Yes. They're doing two each week. So there are three more Sundays. Okay. Two each week. Okay, three more Sundays. Got it. Yes. I mean, that's crazy to think about that we're going to not have it. Well, hopefully by then, hopefully, what's three weeks from now? That's like middle of May. So hopefully we'll be on the home stretch of this coronavirus pandemic. Boy, I uh, hope so. I don't see it, but I hope so. Um, yeah. 
by the way, on the heels of this, uh, I have some conversations coming up with some former Cavs that were part of the late 80s, early 90s teams and getting their view of what they've seen from the last dance and how difficult it's been for some of them to watch it. So that should be fun. Oh, that'll be fantastic. So everybody look out for those coming up with the late 80s Cavaliers, Chris Fedor. And you do have some current Cavalier stuff going on, and we are going to get into that right now. Um, first of all, before we get into the other stuff, um, there, was a, there was a report about May 1st opening uh, NBA facilities, and then today they pushed it back to May 8th. Mm-hmm. What have you heard is the latest on that? It's just when it comes to coronavirus, Hayden, you're kind of at the mercy of the virus. I think Mike yeah. DeWine has said this. I think Adam Silver has said this. Everybody that I've talked to around the NBA and around the Cleveland Cavaliers have said it. It's, yeah, everything keeps moving. Everything keeps adjusting. Because right when you think you have some kind of general idea, something changes. Or you get new information that forces you to adjust. So now it looks like the earliest is May 8th. Um, even when there were rumblings over the weekend about it being May 1st, uh, there were people that I were talking to that said that that was overly ambitious. Um, there was one member of the Cavs that I talked to that said, okay, even though May 1st might be the day, we're probably not going to open on May 1st. We're probably going to wait a little bit longer for the safety of everybody involved. So um, I think what this shows specifically, Hayden, is that The safety of players and everybody involved has always been at the center of the decision that the NBA is trying to make. They're trying to be cognizant of everything. And there's a lot at stake, but they're just not going to put these guys in an unsafe environment, um, regardless of how much money it could cost them, regardless of how much uh, people want to see live sports back, regardless of how much players around the NBA want to return and they want to finish out this regular season and they want to crown a champion. It's just never going to come at the expense of the safety of players. And I think this shows that again, them saying, Oh, you know what? Let's wait May 8th. And when these guys work out, it can only be as individuals. Um, They have to wear masks unless they're doing physical activities. Uh, the coaches have to wear gloves if they're going to work with these guys. Social distancing is still going to have to play a factor. No more than four players at a time. So um, I think it's the smart way, reasonable way to handle this uh, at a time where there aren't easy answers. Yeah, it, it, it does seem like a, a you know, decent way to do it. But I, don't, I, I still think May 8th might even be a little... You might be right. Yeah, I think may I mean I, especially for the you know for places like Ohio that have been really you know with it and really um, kind of ahead of the curve. I think that they've been more a little more cautious than some of the other states, and yeah. I think that the Cavaliers. I mean, you would you know you've talked to some of the guys, and that seems to be the consensus is that they probably would wait a little bit. But I mean, I get I understand the point of opening up the gym or opening up you know team facilities because. You know, some guys don't have the ability to work out and all that. But otherwise, if you can't even run a five on, you know, five person practice, um, I mean, is that really even going to benefit you that much if you open up this early? And is the risk worth the reward is what I'm saying. Is the risk worth, you know, letting guys, you know, four at a time, one on each basket or whatever, work out? Is that worth potentially doing 
you know, risking the coronavirus and the spread of coronavirus. Well, I think the other thing that the NBA is looking at here, Hayden, and they mentioned it um, in these new guidelines that they sent to all of the teams. There are some cities that are becoming more relaxed when it comes to stay at home orders. Yes. And there are a lot of. Yes, there are a lot of players um, that are itching to get back on a basketball court somewhere. So there are players that are probably considering in the back of their minds, maybe in the front of their minds, going to some of these states where they're allowed to go to these indoor gyms and these workout facilities. And I think the NBA wanted to say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Maybe those states are going to be more laxed. Maybe they are going to open up things um, as we go here in the next couple of weeks. But you guys can't do that. You guys can't put yourself in that particular situation. We still want to have some semblance of control. We still want to have some semblance of protection here. So I think that's why they're talking about reopening um, team facilities so that guys don't have to go to the other places, Hayden, and maybe expose themselves in a dangerous kind of way. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point as well. You know, some of the, even the players that I think it's good, you know, it's something to consider, too, that these players that, you know, might play for the Cavaliers certainly aren't in Cleveland right now. I mean, they could be in a state where things are much more lax. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that would that makes a lot of sense that, you know, they don't want these guys necessarily in a place where, oh, well, maybe things are a little more lax in Texas. Like I saw Texas is basically opened up by April 30th. Well, we don't you know, they don't need players in Texas, you know, going on doing everything and then bringing it back to Ohio or right. something like that. So I think that makes a lot of sense. All right, Chris. Um, project text, or excuse me, subtext, as always, you can find your way to us. You can send in your questions to us through subtext, um, $3.99 a month, as I always mentioned, and uh, you will get insider information on the Cavaliers from Chris. I do more of Cavs, Indians, Browns, Ohio State as it um, is merited. And this week, Chris, we got a question about a certain member of the Cavaliers front office that is no longer going to be a member of the Cavaliers front office, Brock Aller, um, one of the more uh, distinguished capologists in the NBA, going to the New York Knicks. And um, that question was essentially, what does this mean for the Cavaliers? How is this going to impact them going forward with Brock being a member of the organization for such a long time? So, Hayden, this is obviously a loss because we're talking about um, not only somebody who is great with the cap, but somebody who's very, very involved in the strategy of building the Cavs. And Brock Aller has always done a really good job as senior director of basketball operations when it comes to weighing the here and now versus the future and threading that needle between short term and long term vision and The Cavs have people internally that are probably going to move up and into bigger roles. And the Cavs have shown in the past, Hayden, that when they lose guys in their front office, either because Dan Gilbert wants to change or because other guys move on to different places, that they have guys waiting and they elevate from within and uh, they groom these guys behind the scenes for situations like this. But Brock is really smart. There are a lot of trades that the Cavs have made recently that maybe they don't even think about the possibility of making those trades 
because they didn't have somebody like Brock telling them that it is possible under the cap. Like the Timofey Mozgov deal that they made a number of years ago to get the Cavs that big man that they were lacking, that LeBron desperately wanted, that was months in the making. That was multiple moves that went into just getting Mozgov. So it was always chess. I remember having a conversation with somebody. um, It was last year, Hayden. It was the Kyle Korver deal that eventually turned into Alec Burks, and Alec Burks turned into a first-round pick, and that turned into Dylan Windler. And I remember going into that season, there was one member of the organization that said to me, Chris, we want a first-round pick for Kyle Korver. And the night that the Cavs traded Kyle Korver, we were in Oklahoma City, and I reached out to that member of the organization. I said, you did not get a first-round pick for Kyle Korver. Like, what happened here? The value that you wanted doesn't match. And he said, Chris, wait. There are other moves coming. And then, again, they took Alec Burks, um, an expiring contract, and they felt like his expiring contract was always going to have more value than Kyle Korver. And then they were always going to be able to turn Alec Burke's expiring contract into a first round pick. Like without Brock Aller, I don't know that that vision is there, right? I don't know that that strategy is in place. So he always created these different avenues for the Cavs to make these smart moves. And I think the Cavs are definitely going to miss that. And just his ability to wiggle around the salary cap and say, yes, we can do this. When maybe some other people would say, nah, I don't think it's possible given the salary restrictions. Chris, who do you envision kind of maybe jumping up to that kind of a level? Or is there anybody, you know, in the organization right now that you could say, oh, maybe that would be the next director of basketball operations? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be that particular title, Hayden. Um, Yeah. Mike Ganzi, obviously, is the assistant general manager. He's the former D-League executive of the year. Um, He's the right-hand man now to Kobe Altman because Brock was the right-hand man to Kobe. But everything with the Cavs is a collaborative thing. Everybody has their own level of responsibility. So um, I don't know that somebody's just going to step right into Brock's um, spot that's vacated now, senior director of basketball operations. But, But I think some of the things that Brock did in terms of strategy, in terms of salary cap, I think those responsibilities are going to be delegated. And um, I don't know if it's going to be him for sure, but a name that I've heard more recently is John Nichols, who does a lot of stuff with analytics and a lot of stuff from the stats side of things. And I think maybe he's going to move into that number crunching um, spot that, that Brock was in. Oh, baby, analytics. Here we go. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. They use <laughs> analytics all the time in this front office. Are you kidding I know. Me? I know. I know. I'm just saying the word is such a buzzword. It gets people <laughs> so upset. Analytics. Ah! I know. <laughs> and there's no reason to be upset about it, Hayden, because it's using as much, gaining as much information as possible to make the best possible decisions. I don't right. know why that's such a bad thing. It's just because it. I, I, I've tried to figure it out. I really have. I've tried to figure it out. I think it's because it is a complex, like, it's not easy. It's not just something that you're like, oh, you know, I think when people say analytics, they just, like, assume, like, oh, well, they're just all the numbers. Okay. Yeah, made well, up stats. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's not. I, I understand that. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the Indians organization about analytics and how they use it and how they've told other organizations about using it. And it's again, it's not it's it's really not the buzzword that everybody makes it out to be. It's literally just finding out every single thing that you can about a player or an, a situation to make the best decision possible. I mean, sure, in some situations, it's not going to work out, but sure, in some situations, you know, traditional scouting or not doing that or just hunches or whatever, they're not going to work out either. So, I mean, I totally agree that it's, it's just a buzzword. And um, it's, it's uh, for, I think, honestly, I think the Browns gave it that negative connotation. I don't think it would have had that negative connotation without, without the 0 and 16. And it's not, I'm not saying it's their fault. I'm just saying because of what happened now, the negative connotation in Cleveland is, Oh, analytics. Cause the Indians were using analytics you know, in the nineties and two thousands and they, they were doing well and, you know, nobody had anything to say then. And then the Browns kind of made it at the forefront of their thing. And they were, you know, acquiring, uh, not acquiring talent, but acquiring assets and went 0 and 16. And then the fans got all upset. And now it's just like this negative Nancy buzzword. Yeah. By the way, you know who in the NFL has been using analytics for years, the Patriots. Yes. The new England Patriots. Yes. Yes. The Philadelphia Eagles. Those yes. teams. Yes. But that's what I'm saying. Do you understand? What I, you know what I mean? Yes. No, I get what you're saying for sure. And you th- I think that makes sense. Just the fact that they, you know, it didn't really work out for the Browns. And now it's this negative, horrible thing. I would argue that it did work out for the Browns, but that's probably in the, a conversation. In the long, okay. for a different... Yes. Yes, it is. And it was, the, it's, it was always going to be long term. So, of course... Well, the, the people, I don't think they articulated that enough. And I don't think that the people understood, the fans understood that enough. I don't think that Jimmy Haslam understood that enough. Would you, we don't need to go into a whole this. thing, but. I can't get into this. <laughs> <laughs> maybe for, maybe for another day. You said the word first. I didn't say it. You said. You you open the you open the wormhole. Uh, okay, so speaking of Brock Aller, uh, yeah, no. of Brock Aller, <laughs> analytics. What about um, it, so it's not done done. Yeah, because there are little things that have to be worked out. But but I'm guessing that it's going to be officially announced um, probably early May that that he is taking over uh, as Leon Rose's right hand man in the new revamped front office of the New York Knicks and. I think that's a big part of the appeal to this. It wasn't easy for Brock to leave Cleveland. Um, he just built a house in Independence a couple of years ago. Just a couple of days ago, he was having a swing set installed in his backyard for his kid. So this was somebody who had set up roots here. And this is basically all he knew in the NBA. Yeah. You know, he started off as, I think it's a negative connotation, but but Dan's... People have said it around the NBA. This is not my word. People around the NBA have said Dan's gopher, kind of doing the small things with Dan's companies. Then all of a sudden, Brock uh, gets a bigger role in the Cavs front office. Uh, David Griffin talked about him being part of the quote-unquote nerd cave. And then he's elevated to senior director of basketball operations. So in the NBA, the Cavs, Dan Gilbert, that's all Brock really knew. So I think part of the appeal to this, even though it was hard for him to leave, is stepping outside of of Dan Gilbert's web, so to speak, and and proving 
that all of the promotions that he got were because he's really, really smart and he's really good at his job and he's not just a Dan Gilbert guy. And this gives him an opportunity to do something that, hey, man, like if you get into the business of sports, you want to be a part of something special, right? Isn't that what it's all about? And who knows what's going to happen in New York? A lot of things have to fall the right way. And there are a lot of questions about their owner. But Brock Aller is going to have an opportunity here, along with Leon Rose, to turn a doormat franchise back into what it once was. And I think people live for that opportunity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, you know, I, the the allure of the Knicks. I mean, I know that maybe for players it's not that way right now because of the way the franchise has been for a while. But I mean, mm-hmm. to, bring, to bring them back. Oh my God. I mean, that would be, you know, that would be a height for any, you know, basketball lifer or anybody who's been in the business of basketball. That would absolutely be a, a dream and a goal. So I don't, I don't, I mean, obviously, you know, like you said, he has roots here, but I don't necessarily blame him for wanting that opportunity at all. Although I think that's, have, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think if it's a lesser job, I, I, I think he probably rebuffs the offer. Right. But this is the Knicks. And if you turn around the Knicks, like think about what that does for your resume. Think about the doors that that can potentially open for you. Oh, yeah. It's it's unfathomable. All right, Chris. Well, we're going to keep it a little shorter this week because last week we kind of got we kind of got it on our soapboxes about uh, our our nostalgia for old uh, hoopers and old players that we loved growing up. But uh this week, we're going to cut it off here, and uh, un- unless we do another one this week, I'm not sure that we will, but we'll, we can talk about that in a little bit. But um, everybody, again, subtext. You can sign up for subtext, $3.99 a month. We will have the links on the uh, page on the Cleveland.com post that we will put up with this podcast. Um, you can catch us at the Wine and Gold Talk podcast every Monday at least, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Chris Fedor, C-H-R-I-S-F-E-D-O-R, and at H underscore Grove. Um, Once again, thank you for joining us, and we will talk to you either later this week or on Monday. Take care. All right.